Once upon a time, a wealthy merchant lost all his fortune in a shipwreck. So the merchant, along with his six sons and six daughters, were forced to move to the country and live like peasants. But his youngest child, Beauty, was destined for greater things. To be traded for a rose, to live captive in a magic house full of invisible servants, to love a beast. This is Singing Bones, a podcast where we look at the origin and evolution of fairy tales. I'm Claire Testoni, and today we are talking about beauty and the beast. Beauty and the Beast is a literary fairy tale. And by that I mean it was written using the language of folk tales, borrowing from familiar stories. But ultimately, it's not like those collected by the Grimm brothers, told beside a fire for generations upon generations, changing slightly with each telling. It was a novella by a French woman, a noble French woman, called Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve in 1740, which explains why it's so detailed and the major details stay the same. Compare it to, say, Snow White, who sometimes has seven dwarves, sometimes has seven knights, or seven robbers. Depending which country and time you're hearing the tale, Beauty and the Beast, by contrast, has very few changeable details. It's often edited down. After all, Villeneuve's version is far too long for a bedtime story, but very little changes. When we strip the story back to its bones, it becomes much more folkloric. A girl is wedded to a monster or an animal. And the animal bridegroom story is a tale as old as time. So to really understand how a beauty could love a beast, we have to go back to ancient Greece and Rome, to the tale of Cupid and Psyche. Depictions of Cupid and Psyche together date back as far as the 4th century BC. Psyche means soul or breath of life in Greek, while Cupid or eros, as he is in Greek, is desire, passion, the guy with the bows and arrows. The image of their union is symbolic of the pure and the profane, the two halves that make up the crazy little thing we call love. It's likely that the story behind their union came much after, as its earliest recording is second century AD by Lucius Apuleius Maturanus. In his first person narrative, in which he gets transformed into a golden ass or donkey and goes on adventures. In his novel, Lucius recounts the tale of Cupid and Psyche as it was told to him by an old woman trying to comfort a young girl kidnapped by pirates. Psyche is the youngest daughter of a king and queen. She is so beautiful that the goddess Venus grows jealous. 
She enlists her son Cupid in her revenge on the young princess. Disguising him as a dragon-like monster and telling the king and queen that he must marry Psyche to him in deference to the goddess. Psyche goes to her wedding in funeral dress, expecting to be eaten by the monster. Instead, she wakes up in a palace and each night, instead of having a monster in her marriage bed, a mysterious man makes love to her. And although she cannot see him in the darkness, he is kind and gentle. One night, after her lover falls asleep, she lights an oil lamp and sees the man in her bed is Cupid, love and lust personified, beautiful above all youths. Of all the strangers you could find in your bed, he would have to be the best option. She examines his quiver and bow and is stuck by one of the arrows. And startled, she spills the oil from her lamp on Cupid's chest, causing him to wake in pain. Cupid's cover is blown. His all-seeing mother, Venus, now knows he is in love with the girl he was meant to kill and is whisked away. Psyche then has to earn her lover back in a series of trials that would make Hercules shudder. I won't ruin the end for you. If you want to hear the full story, you can listen to it on our website. From looking at Cupid and Psyche, we see how idealised and romantic the Beauty and the Beast myth is. It's about romance meeting sexuality, a young bride's awakening. During the Renaissance, a translation of The Golden Ass became very popular and Cupid and Psyche were depicted in much of the art of the classical and then neoclassical art movements. This tale was especially popular with women. It's easy to see why. It tackles the fears of forced marriage. Few women of the time married Cupids. It was far more likely that a girl of 15 would be married to a man of 40. And how beastly would that seem to a 15-year-old? There is comfort in the story that underneath his age and his bad breath, there might be a kindness or tenderness to a man. It also hints at the joys of female sexuality, not something that young women were allowed to discuss at the time. I often hear fairy tales criticised for being too feminine, too upper class, too many princesses, not enough sword fights. The truth is there used to be many more masculine tales, and most were not about royalty. As tales were collected by the wealthy, and as we'll see, by a lot of women, they collected versions of the tales that they knew where the hero was a young prince, not a swineherd. And as more and more learnt to read and write, fairy tales became more the domain of women. Women who tucked their children to bed with stories and shared them with other women. In my own experience, collecting family folk stories, I found it was often the duty of the women to preserve the stories. It had become a sacred women's business to pass to their daughters.
Which brings us back to France, to the court of Louis XIV and the women's business of the literary salons run by the Marquise de Rambouillet. Many of the fairy tales we know so well grew out of ladies' literary salons of the late 16th century in France. Stories like Puss in Boots, Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella. The women who frequented these events were titled educated and bored. They were known as the Precious, which means precious. The name came from a word game they played, but it was rather apt. They were precious, these women. The stories they shared were fairy stories, in the truest meaning of the word, stories with fairies in them. Fairies were big with the Precios, which is where we get the name fairy tales in the first place. These women made fairy tales fashionable. And like all fashions, folk tales have been going and coming back in vogue ever since. They were not all women, but the events were run by women, and the stories they shared were more delicate than the adventurous, sometimes gruesome tales that the lower classes told. Their fairy tales were feminine, chaste, and full of happy endings. The best known of the Precios was one who came after the Salons, in the second wave, 50 years after the Marquise de Rambouillet. A man responsible for fairy godmothers in Cinderella, the most well-known fairy tale collector outside of the Grimm family, Charles Perrault. And it's in that second wave of a very French tradition that Villeneuve writes Beauty and the Beast for the first time. Villeneuve's tale is long and complex, with wandering histories of the fairy who cursed the beast, and overly long descriptions of the beast's palace, a muddled style of prose. But 16 years later, but well before modern copyright laws, a woman named Jean-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont, in case there weren't enough long, impressive sounding names in this episode, well, Beaumont rewrites her tale in English, serialized for young ladies, and Beauty and the Beast is a hit. Beaumont's life reads like Belle's own magical journey. Born into a poor family where many of her siblings were given up for adoption, she had a lovely singing voice and was educated by the local church enough to secure a position as a singing teacher to the children at the court of the Duke of Lorraine. The Duke paid a suspiciously large sum of money to be her dowry, and she was prestigiously wed to Le Prince de Beaumont a cat who spent all of her dowry on his gambling debts. Luckily, she secured an annulment and moved to England to become a governess. Once there, her career as a writer flourished and she had an affair with the spy Thomas Pynchon. Nothing to do with fairy tales, but interesting. Besides Beaumont's version of the tale being a shorter, more focused work of fiction, There were a few key moments of toning down the sexual presence of the beast as a bridegroom. 
In Villeneuve's version, Beauty and the Beast have dinner together every night, and the Beast asks, will you sleep with me tonight? To which Beauty declines. Beaumont makes this exchange more daughter-friendly by changing the Beast's question to, will you marry me, Beauty? Beaumont successfully shifts the emphasis into more of a moral tale of beauty needing to look past the physical in the beast. In her version, the beast is well-spoken, gentlemanly, not as wild as Villeneuve's. The animal nature of his appearance becomes more and more watered down in subsequent storybook retellings, and his animal appearance becomes more like a costume he wears, a fur coat he sheds at the end when she kisses him and breaks the spell. The allure of the animal cannot leave an adult mind, however. In Angela Carter's The Tiger's Bride, a modern folk tale that follows Beauty and the Beast, the beast is a tiger trying hard to suppress his wildness and instead of taming the tiger through love, Carter's beauty embraces her inner animal, stokes her wildness, and her embrace with the tiger at the end reveals a fur coat beneath her white skin. The sexuality of Cupid and Psyche cannot quite be banished. In Jean Cocteau's 1946 film La Belle et Bette, male sexuality is introduced in the character of Avenant, played by Jean Moray, who also plays the prince and the beast. Avenant is as beastly and as boorish in behaviour as the beast is in appearance. Not quite as macho as the Disney character Gaston that he later inspired, but certainly much too much man for a young belle to handle. Cocteau's beautiful dreamlike film had Avenant and Belle's brother storm the castle to rescue her, like Gaston does in the Disney version 50 years later. However, instead of plummeting to his death, Avenant falls into the beast's forbidden glass greenhouse, and a sculpture of the goddess Diana comes to life, shoots him with an arrow, and he is turned into a beast. While at the same time, the beast dying in Belle's arms arises as the prince, who is Jean Marais, in some truly amusing bloomers, and they fly off to his kingdom happily ever after. Cocteau, in using Jean Marais for every role, whose performance of the Beast is truly amazing. If you haven't seen it, do. But his use of casting creates this amazing Freudian transference of feminine fear. He reunites the sacred and the profane to Beauty and the Beast that Cupid and Psyche held. And the arrow from the Diana statue just can't be coincidence. Beauty's story arc of an awakening sexual desire in a young woman runs parallel to the beast's journey to be human. The beast must learn to love 
while young beauty learns to lust. Cocteau's visually striking film with pioneering special effects puts Beaumont's story into the minds of filmmakers everywhere. Since 1946, Beauty and the Beast has been filmed again and again, from Disney's 1991 Oscar-winning musical animation, to Vanessa Hudgens making a teen film called Beastly, to a TV show starring Ron Perlman and Linda Hamilton, and recently a remake of Cocteau's film that was really quite beautiful, starring Vincent Cassell as the Beast in a performance to rival Murray's own. And who could forget the epic 1993 music video directed by Michael Bay, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. With Meatloaf himself as the Beast. I sound like I'm joking, but Meatloaf to me seems like the perfect modern beast. Wild, romantic, not attractive in the conventional sense, but with the undeniable sexuality of a rock and roll star. Beast and Prince in one. It's probably the best adaptation of a fairy tale on film. And it's like seven minutes with helicopters. like this episode there will be another release next week in which I look at the mystery of the very real disappearance of the children of Hamlet and the history of the Pied Piper. Jump on our website singingbonespodcast.com to see beautiful illustrations of Beauty and the Beast and listen to the tale in full as well as that of Cupid and Psyche. I'll put up a list of Similar tales from other cultures as well, if you're interested. The music for this episode is all by Musk Ox from their album, Woodfall. And it's pretty much the best thing in music since early 90s meatloaf. You can find Musk Ox on Bandcamp or follow the link on our website. So right now, I'm working on a season of six episodes covering six fairy tales. If you want to support us and have more bedtime stories to listen to, please support Singing Bones on Patreon. I'll make sure we can include your favourite fairy story. There are shadow puppets and personalised stories on offer to those who pledge. The more you help, the more I can bring you. I'm Claire Testoni and I'm wishing you a happily ever after.